very much for coming. I'm Mike Green. I'm the uh, relatively new uh, CEO and professor here um, uh, running the U.S. Studies Center. Um, we are um, uh, embarked on a number of research projects. Um, our, our motto is um, Analysis of America, um, which you'll hear, Insights for Australia, which you'll hear, uh, Solutions for the Alliance. We're looking to understand the United States. Um, I have, uh, I'm a creature of Washington. I've, um, I've worked in the White House and different parts of uh, think tanks and government and universities. And uh, our mission is to help Australia and Australians understand, make sense of um, US politics, US society, US culture. Maybe now that I'm here and not in the US, I can make some sense of US politics and US society and US culture. Uh, but also we work on policy ideas, policy solutions, things that help um, not only Australia and the US, but the region and the world as we look at challenges from climate change to um, economic decoupling and protectionism. So with that as backdrop and with the US midterm election just around the corner, um, we commissioned a, a major national survey uh, in Australia of the Australian public, uh, the United States and Japan to get a regional uh, perspective on what people thought about the US midterms in American politics, but also what they thought about um, some of the big policy challenges we face like climate change, um, uh, strategic competition uh, and uh, disruptive and emerging technologies. And um, the survey is available on the table if you didn't get one. Um, it, it, it clarifies some things, it's confusing in other ways. Um, it paints a picture of um, uh, concern about uh, US politics and US democracy. We, we asked Australians and Japanese, how many of you think this election, this midterm election matters to Australia or to Japan? And, you know, over 70% in both countries said it matters. Um, we didn't ask that in the United States, and I wonder if we would have gotten <laughs> as high a number. Um, we asked, are you worried about different aspects of American democracy, the, uh, the ability of Congress to function, misinformation, and other things you'll see in the report? You know, Americans, 70% on average, were worried in most of these areas. Um, on a bipartisan basis, Republicans and Democrats were both worried, probably worried about the other side, but but worried. Um, Australians were worried. Roughly half of Australians said the election is important in Australia and we're a bit worried about uh, some of these trends. The Japanese response, less worried. Less than 20 percent of Japanese were terribly worried about American democracy. Um, but Australians were concerned. So that was an important um, illumination of, of, of not only the fact that this election matters to Australians, but but why? Um, and there was at the same time a, a different trend. When you asked Americans about the alliance with Australia, unbelievable partisanship. At a time when Americans are becoming partisan about a lot of issues when it comes to uh, alliances with Australia, with Japan, with Korea, never more bipartisan. The number of Americans in our survey, we've asked this every few years, who think that Australia makes us safe, makes Americans safe, jumped 15 points. Um, so there's, at the same time, you have the political polarization, you have this remarkable uh, unity, really. And I saw it with members of Congress when I was in Washington, I left just a few months ago, around the alliance, around the importance of even economic uh, uh, engagement and trade, where American politics seem polarized, but most Americans, a large majority in both parties think trade and, and economic um, opportunity is important. So it's a real, it's a real mix. Um, to help us make sense of the first part of this, you know, what's happening in American democracy, society, politics, we are very, very fortunate um, uh, to have Jane Koston from the New York Times. Um, and Jane um, is, I've read Jane, um, but now that I've had a, ch a chance to hear her lecture about this in an Australian context, um, have been spellbound. 
She's the host of the argument um, at the New York Times um, and was a senior politics politics reporter at Vox and um, uh, has um, written for The Ringer, ESPN Magazine, um, and and other outlets. Um, and she'll be um, uh, in dialogue with our um, moderator for tonight, Annabelle Crabb, well-known to all of you, of course, ABC writer and presenter. She's covered Australian politics for 20 years as a news reporter and columnist. Um, and she's the creator and presenter of Misrepresented, um, presenter and writer of, for this ABC-wide Australia Talks Project and co-host of the initial and 2021 return series of Tomorrow Tonight with Charlie Pickering. So dynamic duo. Um, uh, as Jane now knows, uh, in Australia before, and we don't do this in the US and we probably should, but before you do any event, um, we do what's called um, acknowledgement of, of nation, uh, what the Canadians call First, uh, first Nation. Um, and in our case, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners uh, of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And for those uh, joining us remotely, and we do have a, uh, an audience online, I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay for respects to their elders, past, present, and future. And with that, Annabelle, over to you. Thank you very much. I think we're hearing from Jane for a, a little bit before we get to have a chat, unless you'd like to go straight to chat. Um, I actually think uh, I would love to go straight to the conversation. I, uh, I've, I've often said that um, it's, you know, it's sort of like how the greatest meeting is a canceled meeting. Yeah. I think the best remarks are often the shortest remarks. So I'm actually more interested to hear what you have to ask and what we can talk about. I knew I immediately liked you, Jane. Um, that is magnificent. Look at us slashing through <laughs> the meetings that could have been an email straight away. Um, thank you for that introduction. And I uh, also would like to traditional uh, to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the great Eora Nation on whose lands we're meeting this evening and a great big welcome to Jane, uh, whose podcast I've been really enjoying and it's a pleasure to meet you in person. So look, it's a tiny question uh, yes. to just sort of unfairly ask you to grapple with mm -hmm. as we kick off this session. What the hell is going on right now? <laughs> um. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, first and foremost, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you to the United States Study Center for having me. Um, thank you to this marvelous country for having me. And I, I'm so excited to be able to be here again. Uh, it's been such a long time since folks have been able to travel and I felt comfortable doing so. And I'm so happy to be here. It's the happiest I've ever been in a plane for that long. And Jane's so, a New Zealander by marriage too. Yes, so. yes. So yeah, um, and this time I didn't fly over a typhoon, which don't recommend. Um, <laughs> thought I was going to die watching Goodfellas. Um, so what the hell is happening? I think that what we are experiencing, one, um, there is this online meme that is um, a woman asking her son, why can't you just be normal? And the son just screams. And I feel as if that is what all of American politics has been for the past, I think some people would say since 2016, but I would actually argue in some ways it's been since about 2008, 2010. I think that we started seeing the leading edge of this a bit during uh, President Obama, the Obama campaign, not the campaign, but how people responded to his campaign. Um, and I think that what's happening now is the result of years and decades of events. I think often about how uh, for many Americans, we are, they are still dealing with the ramifications of the Great Recession. 
and with the ends of the Iraq and Afghanistan war and a host of events that have made them incredibly distrustful of anyone who purports to be able to tell them what to do. And yet weirdly trusting of someone who says, I know what's best and what's best is whatever you want. And I think that in some ways this midterm election is the ultimate kind of in some ways the end point of all of this coming together. So you have the traditional party that has the White House doesn't do well in the next midterms. That's a, that's a given. I think the best performance for a party during a midterm of the last memory has was in 2002. That's when Republicans had control of the White House and Congress, but September 11th had just happened. And so everyone was still on the hurrah war bus, um, which is a funny moment to think back on now, thinking of how Republicans think about that era and think about George W. Bush. They seem weirdly enough to be such simple days. Oh, yeah, just when at the time I remember thinking, well, this is very crazy. I know. No, it's a uh, it's been it's, I was a freshman in high school. It's been a strange time. But um, I think that, you know, so I think that the Democrats struggling in the midterms was kind of a given, especially a Democratic Party that was given control of Congress and the White House in the way that it took place in the midst of a pandemic, in following the attempted insurrection on January 6th, and with the titular head of the opposition party spending most of his time screaming on internet platforms that no one joins about how the 2020 election was stolen from him. I don't think that there really is any precedence for that, but I will say that the Democratic Party struggling initially in these midterms is not terribly surprising. Midterm elections in America tend to be people saying, it's kind of the, what have you done for me lately election? Mm -hmm. And in general, you do not want to be the person in power. You want to be able to say, well, if you just elected us or me, everything would be different. And you know that like in two years, they'll be like, but things aren't different and everyone will be mad again. But then you're already in Congress. So who cares? Um, but I think what's changed a little bit is, one, I think that the uh, Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade made the Supreme Court once again, this massive issue and the issue of abortion brought it back to the states where um, I think there are a lot of people with regard to Roe versus Wade in America who believe that even if abortion should be legal, that it should be a state decision. Mm -hmm. And I think that the challenge has been that so much of state decision has been basically like, let's just let the Supreme Court figure it out. And then they did. And now oh, there are a host of states in America that have abortion laws now currently on the books that were passed in 1850. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there are a lot of people, specifically women, who are who were motivated to head to the polls and motivated to vote for Democrats because of that decision. And a host of Republicans who had spent the past 50 years talking about abortion policy that now actually had to put together an ideal abortion policy. So there's one piece that's making things a little crazier than they would normally be. Another, I think just I would just want to add, though, that everything hanging over this is it's not about. 2022. It's not. It's not about bills. It's not about who controls Congress. It is actually about 2024. It's about the next presidential election. And I think that there are, it's sort of like if you know that you've got a final exam coming up, but first you have to take the midterm. I think that there are a host of people who are basically seeing this midterm as 
if this goes in any specific direction, what will that tell us about 2024? What will that tell us about who wants to run for president? What will that tell us about the orange person and whether he's going to run for president? And I think that that is explaining some of the panic. And especially because Trump's chosen candidates in a host of races, the people he's endorsed, are some of them are doing um, pretty well and some of them are not. Um, you know, you have... He, Trump tends to favor people who he knows from television, which would explain the uh, Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz, or he knows uh, he knew Herschel Walker from his failed. Uh, he ran a the United States Football League in the 1980s. So he knows Herschel Walker from that era. Um, and that and went really well. So it's yep. going. Yeah. Yeah. The USFL. Famously, there isn't a documentary called What Killed the USFL. <laughs> um, there is. It's pretty good. Um, and so I think like those candidates are doing well, but it, it's fascinating now to watch the Republican Party try to have Trumpism while shoving Trump into a closet okay. because he keeps injecting himself into races unhelpfully in Colorado and elsewhere. And yet they need him, but they don't want him. So there are a bunch of things that are making this feel crazy. Also, because every election since 2016 has been insane for everyone. 2018 was people watch elections now with a degree of political hobbyism that is nothing like what I experienced growing up. There used to be a time in which people, like random people on the street would not know who the Speaker of the House was. Now people like Nancy Pelosi is one of the most famous people in America. And that used to not be like that. And mm. so I think that there's just a bunch of things culminating to make a country, my beloved country, a country I will never leave, full of insane people, feel even more insane. Okay, so it's about 2024, but it's also about these state gubernatorial races, right? right? So which particularly in view of the Dobbs decision, mm -hmm. I mean, that's super significant for female voters right. in, a, in a whole bunch of states, right? So I wondered if you could give us your view on, because you read little bits mm -hmm. about this from time to time, what has been the um, voter enrollment effect of that decision, do you think? So I think that there has been an increased voter enrollment from women. And we saw that there was actually um, a special election earlier this year in Kansas, which is a very, interestingly, Democratic governor because the Republicans ran a maniac. I believe I can call I'm, I'm allowed to call him a maniac. He actually was a maniac. When Kansans think you're too ridiculous you're too ridiculous. But anyway, they have a Democratic governor, but it's actually a very conservative state. And there was a um, bill put forward that would have made uh, that would have allowed the Kansas legislature to create extremely stringent abortion laws. And there I think there are a lot of people that add, this was supposed to be used as a bellwether to decide you know, how people were feeling after Dobbs. And the answer was that as with most things, it turns out that a lot of people who thought they knew how they felt about abortion didn't. And you've heard from a host of people who think of themselves as being anti-abortion conservatives who then thought, but this is going too far, or I don't want this. And the bill wound up failing in Kansas. And so I think that there has been both a voter registration impact I think it has also complicated a lot of people's votes, even if they wanted to vote for a Republican, even if they are themselves opposed to abortion. You, um, during this week's uh, debate between Dr. Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman, 
there was a moment in which Dr. Oz said that a woman's, um, an abortion should be a decision between her, her doctor and local political leaders, <laughs> which seems like a lot of people to include in a doctor's office. I don't, American doctor's offices are not that big. Um, and so that was something that you even heard from conservative voters in which they were thinking, well, that's, that's just too much. And there is something about many, the vast majority of American voters, let's say, um, imagine like a rugby pitch between like, there's, you know, either use the ends and I which I can't remember what they're called. Yes, the ends. <laughs> and the vast majority of Americans are somewhere in the middle. There are lots of people who are like, no exceptions, women who have abortions should be tried for murder. And there are lots of people who are like abortions permitted all the time, forever, in every single way. And there aren't that many of either of those, but they tend to be very loud. One of the challenges of American politics is that the loudest people tend to be heard. And it's like social media. Yeah, it's it, like social it media. Is social media. Yeah, it is social media. It is news. You know, you hear more about maniacs than you hear about the notably normal person. And so it turns out that a lot of people's feelings on abortion and a host of other issues are more complex. So you've actually seen a couple of candidates like uh, Republican Blake Masters in Arizona. He used to have on his website about he was 100% pro-life, no exceptions for incest or rape, you know, essentially wanting to prosecute women. And then he deleted it all from his website. Because and then you've seen a host of candidates, especially once they get out of their primaries, once they defeat the other cast of characters who they in order to get the nomination for their party, where then they pivot to the general election. Uh, there's one candidate in Wisconsin, I believe, where his big thing in the primary election was being like he looked like the meanest biker you've ever seen. And he was super, super MAGA all the time. And then in his general election, he's wearing like a sweater vest. <laughs> And he he looks sort of like someone who might be able to fix your internet. And it's just the funniest thing to see. Everybody's just attempting to pivot because- We're attacking to the center is like yeah, attacking time on Right, they're attacking to the center, but in a, such a way that's fascinating because it's on an issue in which there are the people who are, it, it's fascinating because it's one of the times in which often issue group issue groups and people who are, deeply motivated by a certain issue, they try to get candidates and others to tack away from the center. But on this particular issue, so for instance, um, there was, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham put forward a federal abortion bill that would have limited abortion to, um, I think, and you know, no abortions after 15 weeks. And that went against every conservative saying like, no, 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 it should be a state decision, state decision. And Lindsey Graham's like, I don't care. Um, that's my Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Thank you. And nobody went for it. Not one person went for it. And some of the most powerful anti-abortion groups in America wrote letters saying, if you don't go to this, if you don't go with this bill, we'll remember this. And it didn't work. And that never happens. There are host, there are lots of very powerful issue groups in America um, that will write letters or get people who get, you know, get their emails to not vote for you. And this is one of them. I believe it was uh, the Susan B. Anthony Foundation, but no one went for it. And then they sent another letter saying like, actually, you know, we're going to rethink this. We'll come back to you after the election. And it was a fascinating moment of seeing how people's political priorities change yeah. as a result of this decision. 
So in this country, we're one of, I think, 11 countries in the world that enforces compulsory voting. Yes. Right? Like, it's sort of we're unremarkable. We're sandwiches. I know. We, we, we bribe people with fried meats, but also you get a fine if you don't vote. So, mm-hmm. And it seems unremarkable to us, but I think uh, you'd probably be assassinated for suggesting a similar <laughs> system in the US, right? But do you think that, that voluntary voting kind of encourages a system whereby you weaponize upsetting issues in order to garner voter turnout? I think I mean, if you the want people to turn out, you get them mad or right. you get them scared, right? Right, exactly, which is true. I also think that in America, the idea of voluntary voting is supposed to be about the optionality of participation. Mm-hmm. And there's something I've been thinking about politics for a very long time. And there really, to me, is something kind of wonderful, not good but wonderful about someone who just decide, who decides that they will not participate. They will not take part in this. That someone who lets the waves of politics surround them and take them wherever they're going to go. And I think in America, especially, there are lots of people who feel as if even they know that they are being driven by either fear or desire. They know that. They know that they are being pushed and pulled to the polls by something. And that's why about a third to a fourth of Americans don't vote. They also don't vote because they don't see something on the ballot that appeals to them. They also don't vote for any number of issues, including I just didn't want to or I'm not able to because I have a prior felony offense or any number of other issues. And so I think that the the challenge is, one, you historically requiring Americans to do pretty much anything hasn't gone well. Um, it, that we, we're not, it's not, we're not good at that. We have an amendment enjoining anyone who's unhappy to form a well-organized militia and yes. rise up, which always yes. seems sort of excessive to me. Yeah. Well, you know, we are really weird. <laughs> and I think that that's something also because compulsory voting, because of how federalism works in America, it would be, you know, would you have compulsory voting for every mayoral election or for local, for instance, there are elections. Not. No. Yeah, yeah, for, you know, every local election, every state level election, every federal election, like the number of elections that could, there are people who all they do is track different elections around the country and they are the most miserable people in America. <laughs> um, and so I think that for a lot of people, there is this degree of, participation in the electoral system being a decision that they can make, being something. I remember that um, in 2012, I had I had moved to DC in 2010 and I lived in, and DC is a historically black city. Um, and that that's changing somewhat through gentrification and also a host of other things. A lot of people have moved, a lot of African-Americans have moved to the suburbs of DC. But the area where I lived, a neighborhood called Trinidad, was still a very black neighborhood. And I remember the 2012 election going to my polling place and watching a very elderly black man who needed two people to help him walk, getting off of the bus from his nursing home and walking in like with two people carrying him. And he pointed at all of us and said, I'm voting for Obama. And then he walked in, he voted. And they carried him back out. 
And I think about that a lot. And I think about the efforts that have been made to restrict voting, something that we're still seeing today. And yet in Georgia already, early voting numbers, more than a million people have already voted early in Georgia. And that is not because of voting restrictions or attempted voting restrictions. That is in spite of voting restrictions. Like I said, don't tell Americans what to do or try to stop them from doing something that they want to do because we are maniacs. And okay. so I think that that is something I've always found. I understand the draw of compulsory voting. And I also do wonder if we had a system by which every single member of the, let's see, where there are about like 335 million Americans, let's say that like 200 million-ish are about a voting age, a little more. And I would be very curious to see what a country that looked like if all of them decided. Mm -hmm. And But there is something to me about the, the way in which people make a singular decision to participate or not to that I, I think is interesting in its own way. Recently, I mean, I think in your most recent podcast, you interviewed three younger Americans. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested um, in your perceptions of that newest generation mm -hmm. who are new to being able to vote and who have grown up. I mean, I was struck listening to you talking to them that they all had been politically conscious in a time that has been so crazy mm -hmm. that trying to describe how normal politics functions would be like trying to describe yeah. the color blue, right? Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, that was something, um, I'm 35, my freshman year of high school, um, but the first, no, second week of high school was the September 11th attacks. And so I think that that is something I feel a generational kinship of having everything in your entire life. You know, it pretty much went like 9-11, Iraq war, Afghanistan, Afghanistan war, Iraq war, Great Recession, Trump. I, there, a lot of other stuff happened in those times, but that's how it felt. And I think that if you're this generation, your first election that you remember being conscious of, if you're say a freshman or sophomore in college now, so you're 18, 19, is Trump's election in 2016. And then there's, you know, that, then there's a global pandemic, which means that you maybe didn't get to attend your senior year of high school and everything. And then you had the 2020 election, which was that. And so what I was struck by also was one, that the general hopefulness of new, of younger people still remained. All of them talked about how they were scared about the future, but they were all determined to stick with it and fight for what they believed in. Um, we had um, one student, they are a, you know, young person, a young liberal person living in Indiana. And I asked them about voting when you kind of knew that probably your party wasn't going to win. And they just were like, you know, I know that, but I'm going to keep voting and I'm going to get my friends around so me to vote. So lose by less. Right. So and, but it, it still meant a lot to, mm. to them to vote. So do you and, think that that the response to these circumstances being engagement rather than disengagement. Right. Do you think that's a broad pattern? I, I think so, especially because what I hope, now again, this is my desperate pleading hope, is that something that seemed to happen after 2016 was that a host of liberals remembered that there are these things called local elections. And it turns out that no matter who the president is, you could have a mayor who did something completely different. You could yourself run for office. 
Um, there were a host of people in 2017 and 2018 who ran for state houses, ran for governor's mansions, ran for on all sorts of issues and put forward ballot issues. And that led to a lot of change, like, you know, police reform or marijuana legalization on a host of issues changed because everyone remembered that the not the White House is not the most important thing in the face of the earth. And so I hope that and you, you heard, especially from kids, one um, one of the people on the episode, she was from the region where uh, the from the area near Parkland, where um, the school shooting happened at Marjorie Stoneman High School. Mm -hmm. And they got really, really involved in the fight against gun violence and the fight to uh, put in place more gun laws. And that was something they just felt absolutely determined to do. And that was something that also meant that they were learning a lot about how gun laws are passed at the state level, um, often the very local level. That was something, you know, and that's something where you can get a bunch of people to sign a petition and you can have people listen to you. And if you show up in really big numbers, people will kind of have to listen to you. People might not listen to you at the federal level, but they'll care if you're screaming at them at a city council meeting. Mm -hmm. I don't recommend doing that, but like you could. So I think that um, that was something I was really struck by that people had grown up in a very weird political era, but at the same time, like they were still 19, 20, 21 year olds thinking about politics and thinking about how they were more, even if they were conservative, they were more progressive on a lot of issues, especially just because people's politics is complicated. And so I think I found that I found that very reinvigorating. What I didn't want to do, though, is we tend to do this thing where we project all our hopes or fears onto young people. They'll fix this. They're to either you're going to save us from our own problems or you're morons who only eat avocado toast. And so what I didn't want to do was to say, like, there's something people do like, oh, this is the generation that's going to save us. And I'm like, no, why would you, you're 45, go save yourself. Like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're old enough to go hand, like go do it yourself. Don't ask your like 18 year old son to do it. And so I think that, I mean, I remember that from being kind of the, I, my first presidential election was Obama in 2008. And the way people talked about millennials as either dumb entitled morons or you're going to save us from everything and it's always somebody who's like at the time you know someone my age being like oh you do it and it really does feel sometimes like if you have you know if there's a dragon coming at you and then you ask the first, you have the youngest generation get in front of you like you'll save us well, and I, mean, I don't I never wanted to do that well, that doesn't seem to have caught on to the extent that any millennials have really been elected to not yet. Story, yeah, I think right? that that's so, in something. The gerontocracy remains. Right. Um, so now that you've raised the awkward question of age, um, yes. we might turn to the president. And I'm going to ask you mm -hmm. how you, where you think he's placed at the moment, because, you know, you say that this, these midterms are about 2024. Mm -hmm. Well, is he going to be running again in 2024? I noticed that he posed a dangerous rhetorical question just in the last 48 hours where he said, well, you, th you think I'm not up to it, don't vote for me, which is, mm. you know. Well, I think here's the thing that's interesting to me. One, I think he will want to run for office again. I don't know if that means that he will. Two, I think that if Donald Trump runs for office again, Joe Biden will win again. 
And it would be the funniest thing in the entire world to me personally. Not like because it's based that, that um, assumption. Because Donald Trump lost the 2020 presidential election to a man who he accused of campaigning out of his basement. He still lost because it turns out that nothing gets people, all kinds of people, to the polls more than how much they hate Donald Trump. The number of people I met, I mean, that's actually, it's been a fascinating issue for Democrats because there are a host of people who started voting for Democrats only because they hated Donald Trump. And then they're confused. They're like, but why are Democrats kind of more like Mitt Romney? Wasn't Mitt Romney so nice? And Democrats are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no. But I think that the degree to which Donald Trump lives in a world in which it is, you know, November 2nd, 2020 for all the time, he's kind of like a, is it a Miss Havisham who just spends yeah. all her entire life in her wedding dress? It's that's him. Just imagine that. Just think about that <laughs> with the cake. Yeah, the whole thing. And so I think that for for him, the a 2024 presidential run would be about 2020. And I think that for many people voting, they would be thinking, well, it turns out it's a very different time. It's 2024. Um, I don't know if Joe Biden is going to run again. I think that um, that will be a decision in which I, I am going to guess that he will be urged not to do so. Because, I mean, for the same reason that I think it's probably best that the um, America's political left has newer representation than Bernie Sanders, who is a very nice person in his early 80s. And, you know, I like a great many people who are in the early 80s, but also, you know, it's cool if you're like 50. Um, it's funny, though, because you see a bunch of Republicans getting very excited about Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. Very excited. They're desantizing about Ron DeSantis. Mm. Yes, thank you. Very good. That was It's terrible. That was <laughs> awful. But when you look at the polling, he still loses to Trump. He still does. That's not because I, I don't know what would happen in a national election. It turns out that the people who are polled and the people who vote are two different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Bases are different than mass voters. I always say that when you talk about the Republican base or the Democratic base, it's the difference between like, have you heard a Beyonce song versus have you gone to a Beyonce concert? <laughs> but I do think that um, if Biden runs again, I don't I don't know if he will. I don't I think he will be urged against it. But what do I know? I do think that Donald Trump, if even if he were indicted, would attempt to do so, even if every Republican lay down in front of him to stop him, which they would. Republicans. Would are, yes. Republican leadership. I cannot tell you that like Mitch McConnell would lie down in front of a train if they told him like this train, if, if this train goes past, Donald Trump will run again. Because I think that they recognize not that, that, that sentiment doesn't necessarily extend across all likely candidates, right? I think they would all. It's interesting to me that Donald Trump won one election. He's basically like James Buchanan. Um, he's. That like, you know, the one term president, I cannot think in my, I mean, I'd need to go back, but I cannot think of another one term president that seems to have this like weird hold over people. This idea that if you, you know, in 2016, there were 17 Republicans running for office. And there's this idea that he just like out charisma all of them and defeated them. That's not what happened. What happened is that everyone was like, ignore him, 
yell at Ted Cruz, which I get it, very tempting. So, you know, people were like focused on Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or any of the, John Kasich, wow, this this takes me back. And so a lot of people just kind of, and then Donald Trump was just there. He was, you know, Huffington Post used to, they, they said for like the first 18 months of the election, they referred to him. They were like, we will only list him in the entertainment section because mm. his candidacy, it's not real. It's not real. No one took him seriously. Who was it that wrote or said after the 2016 election that journalists took Trump literally, but not seriously? Yes, that is took uh, him seriously, but not literally, which who was it? Yeah. Ah, okay. She, uh, yeah. She's a conservative writer. And I think that um, you would now be seeing a Republican party and you see this even from former Republican Party stalwarts like Paul Ryan, mm. who no one listens to Paul Ryan about anything anymore, but he's still around. He works at the, uh, he's at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. And he's done interviews this week saying, if we nominate Trump again, we will lose. He drags down candidates. He, he, in, like, he is not effective in the same way because in 2016, you didn't know what you were going to get. In 2020, you knew you were going to get a guy yelling about beautiful boaters and talking about tax cuts. And so I think that that would that I think is the ultimate challenge, though, for Joe Biden is because he knows I already beat this guy. I still outpoll this guy. So even if Joe Biden, I don't think he should run again, I can understand the temptation of being like, why not? Um, OK, so if not Joe Biden, then who? Um, oh, man. So I, there are lots of people out there. Um, I think that we saw. In, this is two years away. So there I know are lots of years. people out there. It's kind of like very broad. No, it is. No, I'm just <laughs> thinking because you can, basically thinking through the candidates who were running in the primary in 2015, 2016. Um, <clears throat> I think that if I had to pick potential dark horse candidates, I think Colorado's governor, Jared Polis, who is a popular blue state governor who also is libertarian leaning enough that Republicans are kind of like, eh, he's fine. I think that if I were, I don't, I don't make predictions on anything. I would guess that someone is probably talking to him about making another run. I think that you would probably see some of the same people who ran in 2015, 2016, try it again. I also think that presidential runs tend to be devastating to people who attempt them. It is very difficult to do. And we also saw that there were a lot, because of the presidential nomination process, which is um, bananas in America. I don't, it, 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 it's all these things that they're like, well, we did, we've done it. You know, everybody had to go to New Hampshire in 1910. I'm like, no, I don't care. <laughs> um, because of that process, there tend to be candidates that seem like really good ideas. And then you get to South Carolina and then it's like, actually, this is a terrible idea. Elizabeth Warren should drop out of the race. But I think that you will see Democrats run who are essentially doing a, um, to borrow a previous president's platform, even though he did not do this, uh, Warren Harding argued that he would be a return to normalcy. He was not. He was a scandalously bad president who also conducted a lot of affairs in closets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there will be people who want something that's like not of you know, not of the gerontocracy. That's not not Bernie Sanders, not Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, not these kind of older people. They will want someone who has political experience, but doesn't feel like they've been in your face this whole time. There's a real sense, I think, from 
talking to people that they're just tired of everybody. Uh-huh. You know, they're just tired. Like, you know, if you've been on Stephen Colbert or they've seen you on the daily show, there's kind of this like, uh, who are like, you know, you're kind of tired of it. And so I think that there are going to be people who run who are governors or who have been strong gubernatorial candidates. There are people who are going to run who I think believe that they have more force of personality perhaps than they actually do. That's why I would think that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom would attempt to run. That would not go well at all, but he would do it um, because no one listens to me. And so I think that there will be a host of Democrats who think that this is an opportunity, especially because you will be able to say that it's eight years since 2016. If you were born on election day in 2016, you can now play little kid soccer. Like this, it's time to break from the past. It's time to say something different. There was going to be people who were like, Michelle Obama, she doesn't want to do that. Like being president is terrible. It's exhausting. Running for president is almost worse. And so, but I think that there are going to be younger Democrats, probably not the most, you know, died in the wool liberal candidates, but the people who are like, I have shown that I can operate a state, especially during COVID. I've shown that I have political experience. I have shown that I know what I am doing and I am not a maniac. That I think that those would be the people who looked around. So you haven't mentioned someone who you'd assume would be an automatic candidate in these circumstances, mm-hmm. who's the person who's been the vice president right. for the last few years. Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. very nice person. She, her presidential run did not go very well. I think that the challenge that she has is that her presidential run, I think for many people was ineffective. That's the funny thing about politics is that there's what you've actually done and then there's how you performed doing it. So as vice president, Kamala Harris has been to me pretty good. She's been asked to do a lot of very difficult things. She's been asked to talk about border policy, with Republicans who don't want to hear anyone talk about border policy. She's been asked to talk about a host of issues that in general, people are already biased against her. Mm -hmm. And as far, you know, I think that one of the, being vice president is a very strange job. Um, It's, you know, historically described as being like the worst job because you're not even like the guy. But I think that the challenge is that she is politically perceived as not as being unsuccessful and not very adroit politically. And so I think that, I mean, that's one of the challenges is that you can do any host of things. You can be someone who people remember later. It's been funny being, you know, in America and people are like, well, you know, this person seemed like now thinking back, don't we kind of miss this person? And I'm like, I remember you did not like this person at all. So there's kind of the with their actual actions and how those performances of their actions are perceived. Do you think, and I'm only asking this because in this country we've had one female prime minister Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, ever since she lost office, I think there's been a certain reviewing of the treatment Mm -hmm. that she experienced in office and a recognition that the first woman in that office gets a weird ride because they're the first person to Mm -hmm. be wearing a skirt and kind of Mm -hmm. people are like, ah, there's something about her. I just think is, I don't know what it is, you know. Um, To what extent do you think Kamala Harris's situation has been flavoured by race and gender? Um, I think it has been, especially because 
it, it's interesting because you see a host of people who are like, no, 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 but I like this woman. Yeah. Or this other woman, just not that woman. And it's never the woman who's running. Mm. It's always like the other one. Like, why not this person who isn't running for office or this nice person who isn't running for office? I think that um, it's also a matter of how people perceive. I mean, I think, you know, in 2020, people were going into election in the midst of everything that was taking place in America. Um, you know, you had COVID pandemic. Then you have the murders uh, of uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and George Floyd all happening. It seemed very like in a very short period of time, but Ahmed Arbery was murdered in February. And it was only when the video of his murder became public in May that people were like, oh, this is awful. And you saw this massive investigation from the state of Georgia. And I think that to many people, Joe Biden, who announced his candidacy by referencing the Unite the Right March in Charlottesville. And when he, you know, he won the South Carolina primary essentially because of African-American voters who saw what the available options and chose Joe Biden. I think that there was a sense of like, we know who this person is. And yes, I'm sure that race and gender played into that of finding like this trustworthy, nice old white man. But it also was this person you've known for a very long time. I also think that another piece of this is that Kamala Harris, it was interesting to see how Republicans tried to hit her with being a cop um, with her past um, as being you know, the attorney general of the state of California, while also trying to argue that Democrats weren't nice enough to police. But I do think that her past in California was a particular challenge, where especially in that race. I don't know if 2020 had not happened. Let's just say that we went straight from 2019 to 2021 and we don't have the same kind of mass conversations about policing and we don't have the COVID pandemic. I don't know if her candidacy would go better because people would not be perceiving her through that lens. But I do think that all of that culminated in making it so that I think that, I don't know if she's going to attempt to run again. I would doubt it. But I would say that I think that, that all of that tied together proved to be a massive challenge. And yes, obviously, race and gender played into that. I think that there are the way in which we think about politics is that we think about politics in context. And race and gender, of course, plays into how we perceive that. But I, I think that also the context of her past work, the race and what it looked like in 2020, all of that played in. Okay, and you swung past Georgia a minute ago, yes. and I want to ask you about Georgia. Because mm-hmm. it seems to me like in this completely bonkers landscape, there's a huge hunger to know what's going to happen, right? Yes. And you know, you've you, you did a recent podcast about polling and mm-hmm. whether it's actually making the situation worse. Arguably, um, it is. I think. Um, but it's this hunger to get some sort of certainty as to mm-hmm. what's going to happen, right? And a lot of people seem to really, uh, Democrats seem to gather around, you know, what happened in Georgia, mm-hmm. what happened with Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. um, as this sort of shining example mm-hmm. of how it is indeed possible to flip red right. states. To what extent do you think that that is kind of assuming this Arthurian legend status right. that's I think- setting people up for disappointment? I think it is setting people up for disappointment. Um, but in a couple of it's it's complicated. So I, with regard to Stacey Abrams, I don't she's not going to win the governor's mansion. But it's I, I still can't believe that. Sorry to interrupt that. In 2018, she was the first black woman to be selected 
to run as a gubernatorial candidate by either major party. Right. That is crazy. Yeah. That is- um, I think that it's, well, it's also interesting because so much of that is not about the selection. It's the idea that like how the selection would be perceived. The, uh, the, it has taken so long for people to, uh, to understand that having non-white candidates is not inherently going to turn off large swaths of the electorate which I think is a fascinating thing that politicians tend to do, which is that you tend to assume that the people voting for you are worse people than they actually are. Right, it's and like it's, the UK where they're afraid to organize a prime minister that didn't go to Eton. Right, you couldn't have that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're allowed to be prime minister if you didn't go to Oxford. Um, but I, yeah, I think the the challenge is that the story of Stacey Abrams is that she would have won or should have won and then she didn't win, but she basically sort of did win. And then she organized this mass um, voting apparatus to help Democrats win the Senate and get two uh, Democratic senators from the state of Georgia, which is sort of true and sort of not true. I think you know, she did not win the Georgian governor's race. She did help to organize a mass number of voters, specifically African-American women, the steadiest voting bloc for Democrats in America. No matter how many times Democrats tried to be like, Let's go after white working class men again. I think that the degree to one, you can have policies that appeal to lots of people. The idea that like you got to do the the black lady policy and the white man policy and not just the like, doesn't everybody kind of like this one policy policy? (laughs) Um, I I think that that's somehow this big challenge for politics. But um, also one of the other things that happened in 2021 is that Donald Trump told Republicans to stay home that it wasn't worth it, that the election had been stolen because he called, you know, Brian Kemp, who I think will win the governor's mansion again, which is actually to me fascinating because he stood up to Trump and was like, the election was not stolen here. You're a weirdo. Go away. And like, stop calling various people in my, in, in Georgia and threatening them to find me 11,000 more votes. And yeah, that's he's called. Yeah. And so he called, you know, basically is having all of these people pressuring him and he did not. And I think that for a lot of Georgians, Georgians who will probably vote for Brian Kemp for governor, but then vote for Raphael Warnock for Senate because they perceive that Brian Kemp has been a pretty good governor to them as far as they, you know, as much as you think about your governor that much and that Herschel Walker does not seem like he should be your senator. But I do think that Stacey Abrams organizing a large number of women to vote and organizing a lot of people to register to vote, making it seem as if it is politically possible for Democrats to win in Georgia. I think that is something that is underestimated, that has so much of our conversation about the South or Southern states is that somehow these states, which have the largest percentage of African-American citizens, are still states that, after it, you know, you perceive that in Mississippi, in Georgia and Florida, in Alabama, that you know African Americans won't vote or couldn't win when that wasn't true in Reconstruction, and that's not true now. And so I think that the story of Stacey Abrams has taken on that kind of Arthurian legend. But the part about getting people to vote and organizing people to vote and making it clear that voting would matter, I think that is really important. 
Okay, I'm mindful that we've been talking for some time and I promise I will give you all an opportunity to um, ask questions in a minute, but I'm going to hold on to my exclusive deal um, for just a little bit longer. We haven't talked about the economy yet, which is kind of nuts because that's another mm-hmm. major issue with our eyes have been drawn to these sort of barn door-sized um, moral and flammable right. issues. Um, so in America people are feeling the same sort of stuff that we're feeling Mm -hmm. here, inflation only even worse. Mm -hmm. So how does that that change federal voting sentiment right now? I mean, I think it it definitely makes people more inclined to vote for Republicans, not because Republicans have a better plan on the economy. If you, I think uh, Pete Buttigieg made the point recently, like, can you name what Republicans are going to do on inflation? And the answer is, you have no idea. The only thing- So it's just a basic mummy daddy thing. Sort of. Yeah. It's essentially how midterms work, which is that this you have you don't like what's happening here. So you vote for this other person. I will also say um, the writer Josh Barrow made the point in his newsletter this week that Democrats in some ways are suffering because in 2021, early 2021, Joe Biden and Democrats helped to push through a massive stimulus package, which meant everybody in America got money, which was great, except that that caused a massive increase in inflation. And prices went up, which was not great. People did not like that. And so I think that there's some degree to which the ramifications of that are still playing out. And it's interesting because I think that voters are, you know, I'm a voter and I have complicated opinions. And so you can vote for, you know, you can understand that, like, you don't really like this person, but you want something different from the economy. And if you are a candidate and you are focusing, if you say that you're going to do something about the economy, granted, what you can actually do when this is a global economic problem is somewhat mitigated. If you're running to replace Abigail Spanberger or something like that, I think that it's just playing a role in just saying, like, these people aren't doing it right. I want to look at this other person. Jane, one of the things that I really admire about um, your writing and your broadcasting is that you have an ear for everyone. You know, you, you um, are happy to listen to mm-hmm. opinions of people with whom I assume you disagree, because you certainly can't agree with all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a look at some of the findings in this report released today, um, there is this huge multilateral suspicion and distrust of them over there, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's it's hard to establish a kind of a national square where an adult discussion is had among people who agree with the parameters of the debate. Mm -hmm. Now, is that at an irreparable level now, do you think, in America? No, no. Um, I think one of the things, if you spend a lot of time studying American history, and I'm sure Jackie has heard this point multiple times now, is that American history is a long, sordid tale of Americans hating other Americans a lot, like just a lot. States attempting to go to war with other states has happened during the Civil War. Granted, that was over the most important moral question of that era of slavery. Um, the federal government briefly entertained going to war against the state of Utah. Um, that was due to the small issue of polygamy as practiced by the Church of Latter-day Saints then. But they were prepared to send in troops. And then the Latter-day Saints said, actually, we don't do that anymore, never mind. But there is this kind of, I think that one of the things about America that I, I think once, you, if you spend a lot of time traveling across America, is a general 
you understand, you know, there are people like my dad, I grew up in Ohio and my dad's never been on an airplane. And he's a very learned person who was a librarian and spends most of his time watching Formula One and the Tour de France. <laughs> but his life is basically Southern Ohio and Northern Kentucky. And he doesn't really need to go anywhere else. And you can find millions of people like that in America who basically are like, you know, I went to Maine once. That was pretty great. And that's as much traveling as you need to do because America is massive and there's so many different kinds of places and so many different kinds of people. And most of them don't agree with each other. That's why, you know, I don't live in Ohio anymore because I did not agree with being in Ohio and I moved to Washington, D.C. And I agreed with living in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and you see a host of people, you know, people move across, you know, you start out in Michigan and move to Seattle and you're like, this is so much better. Or you are born in Seattle, move to Arizona and you're like, I never have to see rain again. And it's the ways in which people move across America towards places where they want to be away from people they don't want to be near is kind of the American story of the movement sure. of peoples. But I think that the suspicion and enmity that people feel is magnified and then projected back onto people by a media culture that is nationalizing local issues, that is telling people in Baton Rouge that their biggest concern needs to be that someone's going to make their schools like Seattle schools and then telling people in Seattle that you need to be very afraid because there are white nationalists in Alabama who are going to come hurt you when both are probably pretty unlikely. And I think that now we, I, I often think about this, that we know more about each other than we've ever known in the history of human time. And maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> that there used to be a time in which you might never meet someone from Maine or and Indiana. And, you know, maybe that was okay. But, you know, cat's out of the bag and flight prices are going down. So I think, though, that the distrust of the other, it also comes from not just hate. It's not just, oh, I don't like them. It's that you're afraid that they already don't like you, that they will do something to you because obviously they must hate you too. And I think that that kind of enmity worries me, that kind of where it's, it's a fear-based enmity. It's not, you know, it's not good old fashioned sports hatred. Sports hatred in which you understand that you are playing within the same rules. You are playing the same game. It's just that they suck and you don't. That I think that's something that's different. It's, this is not that. The kind of enmity that's based on, I am afraid of what they would do to my family if they were to come here. And you get that not from ever interacting with them, but from projections that you receive through the media. And the stories I hear from people whose parents, for example, are big time MAGA people, and they are absolutely convinced that their liberal children are you know, pedophiles or evil or something like that. And they are telling them this. And you're just thinking like, do you ever want to see your grandkids again? Because you're not going to. And then, you know, you talk to conservative parents or something who their kids are liberals and they moved away and they never see them anymore. And that kind of enmity that comes from this kind of fear that can break families. I think that concerns me. And that's something that is being magnified by a media culture that knows that nothing sells like either something being really sexy or something being really scary. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really challenging because people will say that they want 
civil debate and argument. But it turns out that in general, people click on the worst thing you've ever seen. Oh, you, you won't believe what this person said. Um, I, I took a tour through Australian magazines and you have a magazine that's called That's Life. And all of the front <laughs> stories were something, it was either, so a woman gave birth in a pub yeah. or something terrible happened. And was eaten by a python. Yes, or something yeah. like that. And then like also how you can get $300,000, one of the two. And so I think like that culture, it's tabloid culture. That's what's effective. But I'm, I am concerned about that type of fear-based enmity in our culture. Talking about sexy and scary, um, I'm just going to get you to give me your hot take before we go to questions mm -hmm. on religion and politics, mm -hmm. the current um, status of the evangelical vote, what are Christian nationalists and are they going to be influential in these midterms? Well, I think that it's a challenge. It's a challenging question because I think that one, the evangelical vote, I when you say that, I know what you mean, mm. but we are also talking about a specific group of people that are separate from people who would identify themselves as evangelicals. Many people, you know, when we're talking about the voting bloc known as evangelicals, we are not talking about Christians who believe that uh, Christ died was and rose again on the third day, who believe in evangelizing, who believe the Bible is literal. We're not talking about that. We are actually talking about a voting bloc who in many ways, recent polling has shown that, for instance, I think like 40% of the people polled who consider themselves evangelicals do not believe that Jesus Christ is God, which if you're Christian is weird. That's kind of, you know, part of the points. And so I think that the concerns about Christian nationalism, especially the way that people are defining that, that is, it's not Christian at all. It has nothing to do with that. It's it's nationalism. It's a specific type of nationalism. It is a nationalism that is about pushing others out. It has nothing to do with adhering to any sort of Christian doctrine. Notably, like several of the people who announced that they are Christian nationalists are all in the midst of divorces, which I, you know, it's not really what you're technically supposed to do. Though I was raised Catholic. I don't know. They probably don't think that I'm Christian either. Um, but I think that that is that's a, a new form of nationalism. And I think that one of the other challenges that in America, and I think in a lot of other places, um, America is a much more religious place, I think, than Australia and New Zealand. And people seem to view that in many ways as sort of like, ooh, look at them over there. And I think that for many Americans who are religious, but who are also multifaceted, who go to church, my parents. My mom is um, Catholic, but she's like liberation theology, Dorothy Day standing up for the Zapatistas Catholic. <laughs> and you have a lot of people who are like that. I think that the, you know, the rise of liberal Christians, and I think they have something to say about how their religion is being personified, especially you know, you, with the real fervent rise of anti-Semitic rhetoric in how people are talking about religion in America, you see a lot of people who aren't Jewish and people who are Jewish standing up against it. And so I think that something that tends to how people talk sometimes about religion in America is that if America were less religious, people would be more sane. But what I have generally found is that when some Americans become less religious, they find something else. And what that is, is QAnon, 
what that is, is something that can fill a cultural and community vacuum. Because keep in mind that for many people, religion is not just what you believe, it's what you go do. It's where you go on Sundays, and then afterwards, you know, you go to parish council meetings, and then afterwards that you might have dinner with your church friends. And I think for a lot of people, that community base that a church can provide, that I remember um, my church in D.C. during some of the Black Lives Matter protests, my church was opening up its doors to people who'd gotten um, tear gassed, and they were helping people put milk in their eyes to get the tear gas out. And that's been the role. And, you know, you think about African-American churches in America. Martin Luther King was a pastor. Raphael Warnock is a pastor at that same church. And so I think that the, the ways in which religion can be wielded in America, I think, are, can be so vicious and so ugly and so scary. But I also think that the ways in which many religious people want to take that back want to say that like, this is not me, this is not what I want. This is not, I, I refuse to let this, you take this. I am not letting Marjorie Taylor Greene determine what my faith looks like. I think that that's been something that I've, you know, I've been hearing from a lot of Christians about as you know, someone who is a Christian. I think that that's something that people are looking to a religious legacy and a faith legacy and saying like, this is not what we want. This is not who we are. And they are also looking at the people who define themselves as being Christian nationalists and noticing like, what about them is Christian in any way, except how much they seem to hate non-Christians. We keep returning to this theme, don't we, that, um, that you tell Americans what to do at their peril. And I think it really contributes to um, an incredibly surprising set of results across these right. terms, right? Um, I'm going to open up to yeah. questions now because I sense that there's an impatience to get involved. That we've got, yeah, come on, you're, you're well credentialed. Why don't you kick us off? You remember that net quote yes. that I couldn't remember. Thank you for that, Annabelle. Um, Jane, I'm, I was just wondering how um, have, there has been a debate um, within America about critical race theory and how it's taught mm-hmm. in schools. I'm, a, I'm aware that the 1619 Project is um, actually taught in the curriculums of uh, public schools in America, and there has been a very vocal opposition um, against this kind of this kind of teaching. And it's led by you know conservative activists, mm-hmm. but also like a grassroots uh, level of uh, organizations. So I'm just wondering how would that have any impact on the midterm? Uh, the second question is uh, with regards to Trump potentially um, wanting for the 2024 election. What happens if he wins? And if people think that it's more than likely that he would lose, but somehow mm-hmm. the opposite happens, would there be any accountability? Um, so your first question, it's interesting because uh, the 1619 Project, which is a project put together by the New York Times um, magazine, it's interesting how it became like this big giant thing. And it, it's also a big giant thing by people who think they're rock ribbed populists because I was like, yeah, American coffee shops are riveted by discussions of the New York Times magazine. But um, that was a package of stories about the impact of slavery on American life, whether that is um, the use of sugar in American culture or how, or kind of the history of medical racism, the belief that, uh, for instance, African-Americans are less vulnerable to pain. Um, I think that that is critical race theory is a specific thing. It's interesting also because I think that many of the people who were the biggest, you know, Derek Bell, who passed away a number of years ago, um, 
he would not have seen the 1619 project as critical race theory. He would just seen it as like an interesting historical package that is too late. Um, one of the fascinating things about studying critical race theory, which is examining race through a number of different lenses, particularly, for instance, um, Derek Bell's biggest theory was the idea of interest convergence, which is the idea that the only reason the civil rights movement worked was because the US needed to have something to go against the Soviets, which were using um, American racism and propaganda. I disagree with that because it basically makes it sound like the civil rights, like that pretty much the American government was like, oh, okay, which I'm pretty sure that Martin Luther King would not remember that being how that went. <laughs> um, and I think that the, the challenge has also been that for the debate over critical race theory was very early 2020. And by this point, I think that there are a host of people who purported to be very mad about it, who have totally forgotten about it. Um, and it's especially sort of critical race theory has kind of acquired its own set of quotation marks. Yes, isn't because it? especially because I think that the number of people who have actually engaged with Richard Delgado is very low. I do think that in um, and with regard to the the sixteen nineteen project being in public schools, it's not in a public schools are local. So, for instance, the public schools of Cincinnati will have a different curriculum than the public schools of Louisville, Kentucky. And the number of districts that are actually teaching, using it as a teaching material, I think is comparatively low. I think that there are a couple that asked for it, but I don't know how many currently are using it. But um, I think that the challenge has been that there have been a lot of, I think, hackneyed efforts to teach anti-racism in American schools, mostly because, um, well, no, it's because how it's because how people want to talk about race and racism versus what would be a good idea to talk about race and racism are two very different things. So, for example, there are these really complicated, like, you know, how to think about race or how to talk about race, but it's always taught by someone who wants twenty thousand dollars to come and talk to your teachers about it, which I should do that for much cheaper. Um, and I think that that is. It's, I think it's a challenge because I think that there are lots of people who want to have conversations about race. There's always somebody in America who's like, we're going to finally have a conversation about race, but no one knows what the conversation is. Um, and I think that for a host of people, there is a real yearning to hear more about the stories of African-Americans and, you know, and included in that history. I think so often our, the history in America is pretty much like slavery and then something happened and then Jim Crow and then wave your hands around and then Martin Luther King saved us, yay! And then it's over now. And I think that there were a lot of people who were like, well, that's just not true. And then I think that there were some people who had a, this idea of America as like an un, and I think Derek Bell, the critical race theorist, had this idea of America as a inherently unredeemable racist society, which I also don't agree with because I think that people tend to be redeemable over generations. People are better. I think that the comedian Chris Rock really said that, um, if I quote him, that this is the best generation of white people who have ever existed in America. <laughs> best one. And you think about it and you think about like the number, you know, acceptance of interracial marriage, acceptance of mixed race people. Like you see that how people are thinking about race has changed over time. I think that for some reason, creating teaching materials about race and the history of race in America appears to be incredibly challenging. As to your second question about 
what whether Trump what would happen if Trump won? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. I think though that based on the number of people who voted against him in 2020, because the thing about 2016 is that Trump positioned himself as this tabula rasa, where you could project onto him whatever you wanted. You'll remember that um, a colleague of mine defined him as a dove, and that then he also said he was going to bomb the shit out of everyone. And then he said he was going to provide health care for everyone. And he basically promised all of these things. But he was still someone who most people knew through television for being a famous rich person. Like he was still the guy in Home Alone 2. And in 2020, he's not that. And in 2024, he's even more than that. He is someone who, as far as you know, has spent the last four years screaming about uh, Mitch McConnell's wife in racist terms on a social network that no one uses. So I think that for me, it would be a matter of all of that changing very quickly, which if this were a different person other than the Donald Trump who exists, it's like how people used to do that. Like, this is the day he finally became president. Sort of like, this is the day my poodle finally stopped doing that thing I hate with the socks. (laughs) But like, they didn't. And so I think that for him to win in 2024 would take a series of machinations that I personally find kind of difficult to imagine, specifically because I think it would require him to be a different person than who he actually is. I think that what we've seen, he has not, you know, there used to be people, you know, people who who went to his rallies in 2016, and they were like, you kind of see how you could be into this. Like, there was something about it that you're like, oh, this is kind of entertaining. And those same people now are going to the rallies he's having now. Then they're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Like you have, it's so, it's so far apart from what, mo- what everyday Americans are interested in. And it is so much towards a base that will never say no to him. That I think that it's, he's more removed from American society in a funny way than he was even in 2020. I think we had another question. Lisa's Maybe. got a question. Is there any risk with candidates, say in Arizona, running for Secretary of State, for example, mm-hmm. election denies those? So I think that is a concern. I think that is something, especially because you have the this. The question a- was, um, just for the, the benefit of those listening in, um, the question was, um, what about people running for yeah. Secretary of State positions and so on, like in Arizona, who are, who are um, election deniers? I think that is a big concern. But what will interest me is whether or not they're, their election denialism is for Trump. It's very focused on the specific 2020 election. And it's interesting because many of the election deniers who have gotten into office since that has happened, notably, they don't deny their own election. Of course not. But it's whether or not you believe it's whether you have a, um, a strict definition of election denialism or a loose definition of election denialism. Donald Trump is a very strict one. He genuinely believes that he will be returned, physically returned to the White House. Um, he was saying this in August of like last year, saying that he was going to literally, this was all literally going to be, they were going to overturn the 2020 election. We were going to go like, whoop, and we we're going to go backwards and it was all going to be changed. There is a very strict definition of it. The election denialists now who kind of, they do the thing of like, well, there were questions. There were questions about the 2020 election. Now, granted, there were questions that they raised. So it'd be like if I said, they're like, oh, there were questions at this event and there were questions that you asked me. So 
I think that is a concern because that is a concern about not just federal elections, but as a concern about other elections, especially if the result does not match with what they want it to be, especially because there's this idea that if you ran the election in the right way, the correct candidate would win, i.e. a Republican. And I think, though, that one of the other things, though, is that occasionally we forget that people uh, that this will Arizona is currently a state with two Democratic senators. And no matter what you think of Kirsten Sinema, still technically a Democratic Sinema, a senator. And so I think that what we're seeing is, you know, the yes, that is a big concern. But I also think that sometimes we talk about Republicans as if they are simultaneously all powerful and big morons. And occasionally, and that's how Republicans talk about Democrats as simultaneously an evil cabal, but also idiots, which it's really hard to run an evil cabal if you're an idiot. It just is. So I think that it's best to think about all of these political machinations happening in a context and to think about each of these actions then being responded to by the Maricopa County Democratic Party, by being responded to by law enforcement, being responded to by the Department of Justice, which is still controlled by a Democratic president under the executive branch. So I think, yes, it is a big concern. It's a big concern when you have people who are running for office on the idea that certain people should win elections and certain people shouldn't. But I also worry that people are that people will be convinced that it just doesn't matter if they vote because the result is already determined. So I think that that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Um, while we're on this question of um, the, the midterms, can you just give us a bit of a flash of what the what the real world possibilities are post this vote? I mean, you've got a president who's going mm-hmm. to introduce legislation, mm-hmm. essentially ratifying. Roe v. Wade, what sort of legislative environment is he likely to have? Well, it will likely be a gridlocked Congress. Um, probably. But that's how you like it in America, right? Like it's designed no. to be gridlocked. It's designed the, so that nobody can ever do anything. People say they want that, and then they're mad when Congress doesn't do anything. But I think that there is a real, I think people find a remarkable comfort and stasis. I think that there's this idea sometimes that if nothing happens, that means nothing bad can happen. And I understand that. Um, I understand the idea that like, if you, you know, if, and I always think about this when I talk to people about this, that like, imagine if your political opposite had complete control of everything and they could do whatever they wanted, would you want them to just be able to go nuts? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it will be a very difficult legislative environment. What's interesting though, and I think we talked about this a couple of days ago, is that it will be a legislative environment in which on cultural issues, nothing will go. Um, There are going to be a lot of very silly investigations into things that people do not care about. However, on a lot of foreign policy issues, especially with regard, you know, you've seen um, Ukraine funding um, that has been, you know, Republicans and Democrats, no matter what you hear from loud people, generally are in agreement on wanting to continue supporting Ukraine. Um, you've heard that on, you know, you see kind of Congress moving in lockstep on issues with regard to China, um, the Chinese government specifically with regard to the chips bill or with regard to, um, concerns about, I mean, I, I've was saying a couple of days ago that the issue of the Chinese government provides a lot of things to everyone, because whether you want to 
be a Republican hawk on China and be Josh Hawley and yell about things, or if you're a liberal and you want to talk about human rights concerns um, with, regal, result, uh, with regard to the Uyghurs or with other issues, and you know, you you kind of see you can talk about Taiwan, for example. So I think that it's going to be a foreign policy emerging as the consensus area. It's I mean, the funniest thing crazy. in the world because it's well, it tends to be for many Americans the issue where it's not impacting them directly, except on one, they have eyes. They can see that what's taking place in Ukraine is terrible. And that is why the occasionally weirdo people who try to influence, offer, you know, kind of anti-Ukraine sentiment, largely try to say that the images that you're seeing are not real Mm -hmm. when they are. Um, Yeah. And let's keep in mind that uh, Tucker Carlson's show gets like what 3.3 million viewers a night. Um, it is the you know it's the most popular political talk show in America. The same they get it gets the exact same ratings as reruns of The Big Bang Theory. Um, That's a very good show, though. I mean, in its defense. <laughs> wow, we are about to have some civil disagreement here. Um, and so I think that I've never seen it, so. I think that uh, sometimes I think we do the thing in American media and also of like over like we I think there's this belief that it's Fox News doing it that's driving everybody insane or it's CNN doing it or it's, but it's like actually cable news shows don't get that many viewers like do you know what the most watched programs in America are one whatever the NFL does like Sunday, Sunday night football, Monday night football, Thursday night football, even on Amazon Prime, even though it's terrible games, more watched than anything else. Two, college football. My alma mater, the University of Michigan, is playing Michigan State University on Saturday and Saturday night, and that will be probably watched by nine to 11 million people, um, most of which obviously did not attend either of those universities. Um, You know, the... uh, Games uh, between Alabama and Tennessee, big, giant, massive, amazing game that got like 10 million viewers. And that's these are universities. And way down the list is like Jake Tapper show or even Tucker Carlson. And so I think that um, for so many people, like we, we have this idea that their politics are being kind of fed to them by television when no, like, they are television is seeing what people are watching and giving them more of it. And then it's this weird feedback loop. But I think that um, it, it's, it's just really interesting to see how all of these machinations are working together and then thinking about like what that means for our politics. And um, so after the election, you will have a, you know, a very contested Congress, but foreign policy, an issue that in general you really can't get people, you know, support for the Iraq war stayed pretty steady until about 2005, 2006. Yeah, there were millions of people who marched against the Iraq war in the United States. But in general, voters were like pretty okay with it for a really long time. And then they just sort of annoyingly forgot about it unless because of how the US military is structured now, that it has become something in which there are people who serve in the military and most people don't. And that's why, you know, people talk about military families. It's a different thing. It's very much a separate sphere, which is very strange. Um, But I think that, you know, unless the U.S. sends forces to Ukraine, you might see a change in attitude. But I think that there are people who understand that this country has been 
invaded wrongfully by, you know, a, a government that appears to wish its elimination and the elimination of those people. And Americans generally are like, seems bad. Don't like it. Send the money. We will send like we want to send them more money and more weapons. We have a lot of weapons and we would like them to have some. And then on issues, you know, I, I think that foreign policy will be something that because most people in general are pretty supportive of being active in the world. I think that that was something that there was a brief, there was a moment under Trump in which people decided that ever that Americans were isolationist, but historically Americans are isolationist after periods in which they feel as if their involvement has gone too far. Isolationism came in the 1920s after the First World War. Isolationism came, I think, after kind of the drawdown of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, a funny drawdown that everyone wanted, but everybody hated. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that now people are understanding that the world is a complex place and the United States has as the most powerful military in the world, and they want it to be available to do things that the American people like, and more importantly, to stand athwart forces that the American people do not like. So I think that's going to be a weird unifier. Mm -hmm. um, you will hear, it's obviously, it's more interesting to hear about Tulsi Gabbard or any host of people who are against that. I understand it's way more interesting, but that is not in general representative of how most voters think. It's not to say that we don't need to have more conversations about diplomacy and that we don't want to be pushed into something. I just think that if you're talking to average voters, you know, you see people in America who have I stand with Ukraine signs outside their house. We are fast. Oh, God, there's hundreds of questions. Like you were next, I believe, sir. And um, we'll get to as many of the rest of you as you possibly can in the, oh, yeah, three minutes. It's 7.27. Okay. Simple cool. yes, no answer would be great. Sorry? Simple yes, no question would be great. Oh, okay. That's, that's really tough for me. Very hard. Okay, firstly. Um, firstly? Firstly, yes. Firstly. Okay, you have one, you have one question. One. Uh, okay. One. All right. All right. Um, Do you want to think about it? We'll take no, 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 no. It's fine. Um, January 6th, yes. we see Mitch McConnell do an interesting speech in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Kevin McCarthy also made statements. Yep. A Everybody few, pretends that that didn't happen, but it did. We a few wrong. days later, we, seven, we see Kevin go down and kiss the ring. Yeah. The moment fell apart. Second impeachment. Yeah. Nothing happened, right. really. Critical juncture. Mitch has talked about Senate quality candidates, yep. and we have the likes of a form of yes. Walker. Thank you. Uh, and then we have candidates like Lauren Bobart, one yeah. of my favourites, Christian nationalist, talking about the separation of church and state in the most bizarre way. Yes. What um, is your question? Now, my question is, it seems that the GOP primaries are still beholden to essentially kissing the ring and getting the Trump endorsement. Mm -hmm. So it's become Trumpism, not Trump as a candidate, as right. you explained in detail, and on Wednesday night. Your question, yes. So my question is... How do you get away to a more third-party status, like we've seen in Australia, where instead of having the loony part of the GOP elect crazy candidates, is the result that we're going to see in the in the midterms more favourable for the Democrats if they elect a swag of loony right-wing 
Lauren Bobart, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the candidates across the board, to come into Congress, make no. lots of noise and no. look ridiculous. Okay. No, bad. No, no, very bad. You should not. You should not give crazy people power in order to send a message or to heighten the contradictions or to do anything that is going to hurt people. Let's keep in mind that all of these people would be representing actual human beings. Marjorie Taylor Greene has an actual district. They do not like her, but they can't get rid of her due to gerrymandering. So no, very bad. I would say I, Trump always occasionally threatens to go, go, start a third party. No one has attempted really to do that. I mean, there are multiple parties, but no one's really done that since the Bull Moose Party and Teddy Roosevelt, and that didn't work either. Um, I'm green so shirt. Can we oh, ask one more question? One green shirt person, and yes, then we that's are it. done. Oh my goodness. Okay, Sorry, no pressure. Um, I was just going to ask, could you speak to the extent of the January 6th hearings and the effect that would have on the midterms? I think it will have a... I think Democrats want it to have more of an effect. Republicans want it to have less of an effect. I think it will have an effect because you there are certain Republican candidates who are basically running on 2020 stuff. And even though other Republicans are like, please don't, I think we'll have it, it's not good that there are a lot of people. I think it will not be as helpful for Democrats as they want it to be. I also think that people aren't just going to forget about it like Republicans want them to. It's not obviously top of mind for lots of voters, but Republicans always are like, oh, people care about kitchen table issues. And then they move around to being like, and that's why we need to eliminate Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And I'm like, what? So the answer is it's not it will not be as helpful as Democrats want it to be. It will not be as forgotten as Republicans want it to be. Jane, um, listening to you is uh so entrancing. We could all be here all night doing it. And I do encourage you, um, if you are uh, wanting to hear more of Jane's voice, definitely follow the arguments. Great podcast you post very regularly, which mm -hmm. is every Wednesday, which is not Wednesday for you. So it would show up there's Tuesday. A, yeah. Yes, yeah, yes. No, no, today. So there's a new one today. Oh, yes. There's a new there's one today. today. Yes. Thursday. Yeah. Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> But look, um, I think everyone in this room, I, I would be speaking for when I say thank you for thank the you so clarity much for and the broad ranging wit and insight that you bring to this completely demented landscape. Yes. I mean, um, you are a great guide. Oh, thank uh, you. And thank you for being here with us. Absolutely. And I and, think that. Oh, and Annabelle, thank you to you. Uh, masterfully done. As you said, what makes Jane's podcast writing so remarkable um, is that she has an ear for everyone. So even my politically divided family, where we have everybody from Sanders to Trump supporters, all agrees that Jane Coaston's onto something. So please listen to the podcast, and not just tonight, uh, tonight but going forward. And Annabelle and Jane, thanks so much. Pick